Hello and welcome to the AWS Podcast. Simon Alicia here with a special episode in a special series for you. This series is called Startup Stories and is a weekly series of podcasts related to the startup world hosted by Darren Morey. In your AWS podcast feed, you'll still get the regular AWS podcast, but now also sometimes special series during the week that will be indicated as such with a tag in the title. That way you can choose which ones to listen to and which ones may not be in your area of interest. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this special series and keep on building. Welcome to the AWS Startup Stories, a weekly podcast about getting a business off the ground, keeping it there, and growing it further. In each episode, we'll be talking to one or several rising stars of the startup world and hear about their stories and ideas, the obstacles they've had to overcome, and the things they wish they'd known before they got started on building their digital businesses. My name is Darren Morey, and I lead the startup and venture capital business development team at Amazon Web Services. And today, I'm very happy to welcome Tessa Cook, co-founder and CEO of Olio Exchange, a free app tackling the problem of food waste by connecting people in their neighborhoods and local shops so that food doesn't get needlessly thrown away. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tessa. Um, we have a whole lot of things to talk about over the next 15 to 20 minutes, and a lot of our listeners I know will be very interested in, in learning from you and your experience you know, one of the things that many startups struggle with is marketing, not only marketing the brand, but also getting users and consumers to be attracted to the solution and to the product that's been built. Getting your name out there, growing your user base, acquiring partners, these are all challenges we hear quite consistently. And we know that those things are hard, especially in some cases where a founder is a technical type of founder and may not have the business experience that other founders may have. And also, many startups are struggling with the funding that they may need in order to build out the marketing programs that they ideally would want. But I'm really excited to have you here today uh, because Olio is a really inspiring example of how you can, one, build a social enterprise while also being focused on getting new customers without a massive marketing investment. And as you and I have discussed prior to our discussion today, using the sense of community in order to really make something monumental happen. Before we get started, I just want to make sure that the listeners of the podcast have an idea of the incredible results that you and your team have already generated. Uh, so some of these stats include, you know, the fact that your team piloted the app in the second half of 2015, you made it available across the UK at the end of January 2016, and then worldwide in October 2016. Since then, you've had over 170,000 users sign up and over 210,000 items, which, by the way, is equivalent to 90,000 meals have been shared through what you've created. Demand for your surplus food is incredibly high, with what you've told us 40% of items being requested in less than an hour and 80% in less than 24 hours. This growth you've uh, called out is really not only due to the incredible need heard in the community, but also through your over 10,000 volunteers, which I hope we get a chance to talk about as well. Yeah. So first and foremost, congratulations on an incredible idea that not only is a, is a successful business, but is also clearly making a difference in the community. So fantastic. <laughs> So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to just spend a few minutes giving us an idea of your background. You know, what are the experiences that you've had yeah. that have now led you to Olio? Yeah, sure. So um, I've uh, really come full circle with Olio, actually. I'm a farmer's daughter originally, so I spent the first 21 years of my life learning firsthand just how much hard work goes into producing the food that we all eat every day. Um, I then, after leaving the farm, went to university and uh, started off my career as a strategy consultant. 
I did that for three years and then decided that I wanted to do a real job um, and so moved over into the more operational side of things in the media industry. And then I've had spent the past sort of 10 or 15 years in a variety of roles in media, financial services uh, and retail, all in digital roles and in sort of general management positions. So it's sort of uh, most recently a managing director level. Excellent. And that kind of brings us to how you came up with this idea and you and your co-founder launching Oleo. So can you help us understand with that interesting and unique set of of experiences, how did you make that jump to now have this incredible social enterprise that we find in Oleo? Yeah, so um, I was moving country two years ago and I found myself with some food that we hadn't managed to eat. And the removal men told me that uh, I need to throw it all away. As someone who hates food waste, this was not going to happen. So I set out onto the streets with my newborn baby and toddler, much to their irritation, to find someone to give the food to. And I failed miserably and got a little over-emotional. And I thought about all the different ways in which I could try and share that food, involving knocking on people's doors and things like that. And just nothing seemed practical. So... Uh, I actually ended up uh, smuggling some of the food that was non-perishable into my packing boxes, bring it back into the country and through, through that whole process thought, this is crazy, this is valuable, delicious food. I know someone will want it within a matter of 100 metres of me. The problem is they don't know about it. And so having worked in the digital space for so long, for me, it was very natural to think, why isn't there an app for that? That's excellent. And I think you're right. It's definitely something that when I even heard of, of your background and what you've done, I obviously nod my head and say, there's, that's an obvious need. I understand why, mm. you know, why the community would, would have a need for Oleo. And yet it sounds like you took a very scientific and a kind of a market-driven approach to understand how Oleo should get started. So yeah. could you share a little bit of insight into that market research that you conducted? Yeah, we did. So after having that sort of light bulb moment, um, the first thing we did was market research, desk research to find out how big is the problem of food waste? Uh, and what we discovered just shocked and horrified us. So over a third of all the food we produce globally is thrown away. Um, I went boys to death with all the other findings of our, of our market research. But after we'd done the market research, we had clearly established that this was an enormous problem. Um, and the second step we then wanted to take was to understand it might be an enormous problem, but do people care about it? So to try and uh, get some evidence of that we did a market research survey and we sent it out to all our friends and family posted on lots of Facebook groups and through that we were trying to understand if people cared about the problem of food waste if they hated having to throw away food or not and the key piece of insight from that was we found that one in three people were physically pained quote unquote throwing away good food and we used deliberately extreme language because we wanted to filter out the yes it's not a good thing type of response so for us that was very exciting wow an enormous market problem one in three people are physically pain throwing away good food but we recognized that after that we still didn't have um, evidence as to whether people would take that next step which was our hypothesis which was to actually share food with a neighbor And we wanted to try and prove that before spending lots of money building an app that maybe no one would want. And what we did was we contacted the 12 people, uh, 12 people who had said they were physically pain throwing away food, who did the market research survey. And we asked them if they would take part in an experiment. And we put them on a WhatsApp group together for two weeks and asked them to share any surplus food that they might have during those two weeks. And we sat and watched with bated breath to see whether anyone would actually share any food. And we were delighted when they did. And we then met and debriefed with every single one of those uh, people afterwards to get their feedback on what the experience was like. And, And we had two clear pieces of feedback, which was one, 
you must build this app. We really, really want it. And two, it only has to be slightly better than a WhatsApp group. <laughs> So with that that sort of advice ringing in our ears, um, and we had read uh, the Lean Startup book, we really um, sort of embraced the whole MVP type mm -hmm. approach. So just launching the most uh, minimal sort of feature set that was required to enable people to share food. Mm -hmm. And that was what enabled us to get to market really very quickly. Excellent. So in addition to a, a really compelling market research approach, I love the concept of using WhatsApp because as you and I also hinted before we walked yeah. into this room to, to record this podcast, so many startups are investing so much money and capital in just that initial experimentation, right? And yeah. so sometimes I know in Amazon, we talk about the cost of experimentation and the risk of experimentation and how we're trying to also shrink that down, not only for ourselves, yeah. but for our customers. It's a phenomenal approach, though, that you took yeah. to use an existing platform in order to that get some interesting and, and that's what I say to other entrepreneurs who, who talk to me about an idea they might have. I say, go create a, a Facebook group. Um, and if you can't get people to come to your Facebook group and interact in the way that you want, then you certainly aren't going to be able to get them to come to a separate platform somewhere. Um, so, Powerful yeah, I, th I think it's, it's a really good low-cost way to test your idea. Excellent. Well, I know we'll talk a, a little bit uh, more in a moment about the product itself and the iterative cycle yeah. that, that you've mentioned, but specific to your to your business plan, one thing mm -hmm. that I'd uh, love to hear a little bit more about is taking the insight, insights that you gathered from the market research, but taking that and creating an actual business plan of, okay, now, as you said, I, I know there's a need, I know there's a, an opportunity for an application, but what sort of steps did you take to translate that into a business plan? Understanding yeah. that our listeners may find themselves in a similar situation of having a great idea, but not knowing exactly that first step to take. Yeah. I mean, we did a combination of sort of top-down um, business planning and, and, and bottom-up. So the top-down was really understanding how big is the market, and then segmenting it down to understand which portion we can realistically address and what share do we think we could possibly get. So that gave us some sort of idea of the size of the prize. And then we also did some sort of bottom-up analysis. Let's, what happens if we acquire this many users who undertake this many transactions, etc. We, In terms of the monetization, we spent quite some time thinking of all the different ways in which we could monetize essentially a hyperlocal food sharing platform mm -hmm. um, and there, there were many ways we prioritized them and uh, we launched though without any monetization built into the app or into the product experience because we knew that we just needed to get some traction first mm -hmm. and that monetizing a tiny audience is nothing uh, and also for our type of product we started so lean that it was hard to know what exactly we were monetizing at that very early stage and it's only just now, almost two years later, that we have a much clearer idea of what our product is. And it's evolved enormously since when we first launched. And so now is the right time for us to be unlocking some of the value that we're providing for our users. Excellent. And I know you mentioned monetization. And again, I think one of the fascinating parts of, of Olio is the monetization that comes not only to fuel and fund you as a business, but also the philanthropic side of the mm -hmm. business. And so the fact that you've been able to fuse those two things together versus resisting the challenge of either be a charity or be a business, you're being a charitable business. And so can yeah. you help the, the listeners understand monetization, not only to as a revenue stream, but also as a philanthropic stream as well? Yeah, I mean, we... Um since starting on our earlier journey, we have discovered uh, this whole world of um, impact, really. So 
we we knew that we were a business that had a very strong social mission at its core and we do today raise a lot of eyebrows because the charitable people think we're too commercial and the commercial people think shouldn't we be a charity we are very very you know we have very strong belief that where we are in the middle which is marrying a sustainable business model with a strong social mission and purpose is the business construct of the future. This is the type of organization that the world needs to solve some of the enormous problems that we have out there today. That's excellent. You know, and obviously where we are now with an amazing idea, incredible market research, a great business plan is then reaching out and beginning to to form those audiences, those uh, those uh, communities of users. Yeah. You know, the fact now that, um, as we know, we, you have 170,000 active users, which is mm-hmm. just incredible. Um, again, proves that your idea has a lot of merit, that there's people there that want to take part in the in the platform. Can you help us understand how did you go about getting started, identifying yeah. those very first early uh, pockets of users? And then how did you then take those early pockets and expand on those? Yeah. So uh, from the very beginning, those uh, in the WhatsApp group where we did the proof of concept, 12 people took part in that pilot. Mm-hmm. And It was very clear from their passion that they were keen to help us when we actually launched the app. So we created from the very beginning, even before we launched, the concept of an Olio ambassador. So that was someone who was going to support us on our mission. When you're creating a two-sided marketplace, you need whatever help you can get um, to balance that sort of supply and demand. So our early ambassadors were spreading the word for us in their local community, and they were also fueling the marketplace with surplus from their own homes as well. And that was what was required to kickstart the business initially in a very, very small geography that we had ring-fenced for our pilot area. Mm-hmm. We, um, With everything we do, we start manually and then we learn and then we automate after that. And so with the ambassadors, we found that people started reaching out to us asking how they could help Olio and that was very surprising in a in a positive way very early on and, and we quickly realized there's something going on here and Sasha and I personally spoke to hundreds of people who reached out to us to offer to volunteer to understand what volunteering could look like and then once we've got a good grasp of that we've now completely automated the process and so now we have over 10,000 volunteers with another 100 to 200 joining us every week and they go on a journey that we've designed through us doing stuff that doesn't scale and talking to every single one of those early volunteers. I think it's really interesting. And the point that you just said, purposely doing things manually and then auto- automating later yeah. or purposely choosing to not scale in the beginning. I think, um, as I'm sure you would agree, there's so much literature, so many podcasts that are all about you know, scale from day one. And in some mm-hmm. businesses that may make sense, but I think it's very powerful for the listeners to hear that in your yeah. case, really, let's prove this first. Let's put some yeah. elbow grease into this before we immediately turn to automation. Yeah, we... we uh have done the exact opposite which is we have done stuff that does not scale uh, from day one because we knew that we needed those foundations to build the business and so that involved us doing things like putting letters through thousands of our neighbors letterboxes personally um, handing out free food on the streets and signing people up to the app that is a lot of stuff that does not scale but actually right now when you have no budget it's the only way that you can get your first customers on board. 
That's a very, very good point. And something that strikes me, because you, you clearly are building a community and an app that puts that user, puts that customer, if you will, in the center. And one of the stories that was shared with me that I'd, I'd love to hear more about is uh, the original intent, again, to be on the, the needless or useless uh, wasting of food. And yet there mm-hmm. were some customers, some users who early on started using your app for things that didn't have anything to do with food. Yeah. And from what I understand, there was a little bit of maybe resistance or questioning up front. Mm-hmm. But I think you've now embraced that change and really yeah. now converted or, or evolved the platform to not just be about food. Is yeah. that true? And can, can you help me understand how did you make that shift from food to any product that somebody may want to to yeah. give to someone else. Yeah. Um, so we, we found that our users started adding non-food items to the app. So toiletries, cosmetics, uh, toys, clothes, books. And that was not our original intention. Uh, and so I was dutifully taking down all of those listings. And it, it started to reach the point I very quickly realized, hang on a minute, this is not scalable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I cannot continue to take down all these items. And secondly, why are we fighting this? And when we looked into it and and spoke to those users and understood what was happening, our early adopters hated food waste. Therefore, they didn't generate any food waste, but they still wanted to be part of Olio. And actually, they hated waste in general. And so that is why they were sharing their bubble wrap or their light bulbs or, or, um, you know, the other half package of their baby's swim nappies that they'd Mm. grown out of. And uh, we realised very quickly that actually... Olio is not just about hating food waste, it's about hating waste of all variety. And allowing non-food items onto the platform, we have put it sort of in second place to food. So food is our mission. Mm -hmm. But the non-food items provide more content onto the platform, more opportunities for engagement, and might also appeal to a slightly more mainstream audience as well, who can then come in and then uh, continue to share food at a later date. Excellent. If we can, let's return to the the concept of these 10,000 volunteers, which is just a a miraculous number of people who are helping you grow your business. And I think that that's just so powerful. You talk about the ambassadors, and yet there's another category of volunteer as well, not just the ambassadors. And I'm curious, one, can you help us understand uh, these two different types of volunteers? That's point one. And point two... Uh, how are you embracing and leveraging those people to uh, help augment, as you've said, a mm. shoestring, if if even existing, marketing budget, right, to yeah. actually help you grow this business? Yeah. So Olio wouldn't be where we are today were it not for, as you said, our, our over 10,000 and counting volunteers. Um, so the, the ambassadors are people who are out in their local community spreading the word about Olio and doing super low-cost guerrilla marketing on our behalf. Um, And when you have no marketing budget, that's just an extremely attractive and scalable route to market. We and and that model was with us from day one. What we found fairly early on, one of our biggest challenges was actually getting enough supply, so enough surplus food onto the app. And that was because our early adopters hated food waste, therefore didn't generate much food waste, therefore couldn't add to it. And yet the demand for the surplus food was insanely high. So items were going on the app. They'd be on there for minutes and they'd be requested and come down. So we were thinking, how can we unlock more supply onto onto the platform? And that was where we came up with the concept of matching our volunteers with their local supermarket, cafe, bakery. And they would provide a service whereby they would collect their unsold food at the end of the day, take it home and add it to the Olio app and redistribute it to the local community. And so it was through trying to sort of unlock our supply conundrum that we came up with that model. But that wasn't actually our first iteration. Uh, We had initially at the beginning hoped or believed, I think, 
probably quite naively that the retailers and these small businesses would use the app themselves. And we spent some time trying to encourage them to do that. And we very quickly learned that they had too high staff turnover. They were too focused on the day-to-day operation of the business and that using an app at mm. the end of the day uh, was not going to work for them. And so the Food Waste Heroes program really is a way of sort of getting around that and it's enabling us to leapfrog and put an injection of high-quality, consistent, very desirable surplus food on, onto the app. Exactly. And as you've said, uh, in a supply and demand model, you are focused on the supply without the supply. That That's the, the chicken or the egg model yeah. that, that you can t- consistently yeah. Uh, talk to. Yeah, absolutely. So before we started off with Olio and when we were sort of doing the business planning, you know, we didn't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg, the supply or the demand. For us, we've now discovered very clearly that we need the supply there first and then um, demand very, very quickly follows after that. And we've worked with a number of retailers such as Sainsbury's and Morrison's to sort of develop that program because that's also solving a problem for them. They need to have zero food waste stores. Exactly. Fascinating. So let's let's change gears a little bit and talk about the application itself, if you don't mind. Yep. And while we won't go into an overall technical discussion, <laughs> I am curious about a few things. And that is when you think about the user experience and you think about the application itself, how have you built a culture that's focused on this, this very customer-centric sort of model? So how are you iterating around customer requests mm-hmm. and how are you also taking in customer feedback? And how do yeah. you balance that feedback to ensure that your application reflects what your community actually wants to see? Yeah. So um, Sasha, my co-founder, and I, from sort of day one, we've had very clear divisional responsibilities and and product uh, sits with me and also customer support sits with me. And so throughout the app, whenever a user encounters any difficulties or problems, we always make sure not just to leave them with an error message, but to give them a route to be able to send us an email so that we can help. And um, we ask for feedback not just through the app, but via emails and also through using the app as well ourselves. So mm-hmm. every single one of the team, we're all super users. We use it multiple times per week. And through all those different channels, we get a really, really good sort of understanding as to what the user experience is uh, on the app. And as a result, we, we sort of keep uh, our product roadmap, I would say, is is very clearly mapped out for the next sort of three weeks. It's fairly well defined for three months and then beyond that we have a a long sort of laundry list and through the user feedback coming in both through verbally and through uh through email we're constantly updating that roadmap and and moving our priorities around but it is important to balance we our users are very very passionate and very very vocal and so sometimes we have to sometimes that feedback is invaluable and takes the product in a, in a different direction that we might not have necessarily anticipated but sometimes we have to recognize that actually the person who shouts loudest isn't necessarily you know the feature that that needs to be developed as we look over the long-term future of the business and where it needs to go excellent excellent so let's talk a little bit about culture and the culture that you're building as a yep. co-founder not only are you building a great platform and a great product and helping solve a societal need you're also truly defining a culture. You're a chief culture officer as well. Yeah. So um, one of the things that struck me is the concept at Oleo of, of remote working. And mm-hmm. it's something also you and I had discussed of 
uh, many companies and many startups jumping right into the model of let's open an office, let's hang out a shingle, be in the right part of town, you know, those sorts of questions. But I was curious that you've chosen a different approach. So can you give us some understanding as to why have you chosen to be a little bit more of a remote model? How has that worked for you? And what kind of guidance would you give other startup founders about, um, you know, location of their company? Yeah. So, um, I think our choices have very much been driven by Sasha and I. We are both mums with young children. So I've got two kids who are two and four. uh, And Sasha's got a little uh, five-year-old boy as well. And so for us, for Olio to work with our lives, we have to be flexible. And we also, you know, our company's mission is about hating waste. And that, that follows through to everything we do. So we spend our money very, very carefully. And so we very quickly realized that with all the modern tools that are available to you today it it, is extremely easy to work remotely and to not have to incur the overhead of an office the downtime wasted time of commuting and we've found that through recruitment actually it's been an incredibly attractive proposition to uh, the team who now work for us because they too want to have autonomy and flexibility in their lives and as a result of that they are just insanely motivated. Mm -hmm. And so from a recruitment perspective, that's another excellent point because people will ultimately be the ones that live out the culture that you're defining. Do you have any insights into how you've gone about accessing and attracting talent that not only have the functional skills that you need, but also believe deeply in the mission that you're trying to to address as well? Well, I I think you've uh, hit the nail on the head there. It's about the mission. So I have never before worked or been part of an organization that has such a strong mission as Olio does. And I would say it is our single biggest source of competitive advantage because we are able to attract a caliber of individual because we have our mission, because they buy into it, they want to be part of it. And I think increasingly people nowadays are wanting to wake up, make a difference and live a flexible, autonomous life. And with Olio, we're able to offer people all of those three things. And so we've been able to attract an A-star team through having a mission and having this flexible, autonomous culture. Fantastic. So when we think about growth of the company, one of the areas that obviously comes to mind is not just attracting even more users in the communities where you're already present, but identifying new markets, new perhaps global expansion opportunities. So can you speak just for a moment on where are you currently operating and then how do you think about global expansion, not only in terms of where you might go next, but once you identify a new market, what are the sorts of steps that you might take to enter that new market? Yeah, so we are somewhere that we never imagined that we would be uh, at this point in time. We'd read all the textbooks about how to build a hyperlocal marketplace business. And they all said very clearly that you need to stay hyperlocal and stay hyperlocal for an awful long time. We quickly discovered, uh, so we've, when we first launched the pilots, it was just in five postcodes in North London. And we quickly discovered that the demand for Olio was just enormous outside of the areas where we were operating. And even when we were London-wide, 70% of our downloads were coming from outside of London. And people were getting quite frustrated with us that they couldn't use our platform. And from day one, our ambition has always been global uh, and to create a platform. So what we've really done is we have opened up that platform and Olio is now available to be used anywhere in the world. But in parallel to doing that, we have done a couple of things. One, we've managed the user experience through the product. So if you live somewhere where 
there aren't many items near you, we have a call to action within the app encouraging them to get in touch with us to help bring Olio to their neighbourhood. So that means that it's not a frustrating experience if you if you live somewhere um, where Olio isn't yet up and running. Um, and then we've also provided people with all the tools and tips and techniques and community needed to help them get Olio kickstarted near them. So as a result of that model, 15% of our audience is now based internationally, and that's all been driven by organic word of mouth. And there's been several advantages to this approach. One, I believe that we've deflected a lot of competitors because a lot of people contact us saying, I'm going to do the same thing, I was going to do the same thing. And nine times out of 10, they're joining us rather than setting something up uh, in their own country because we say, here's the platform, here's all the know-how, go for it. Um, and also it's given us early data about which communities and which cultures are embracing Olio very naturally. And so we had initially assumed, before we made the app available globally, we had initially assumed that France and Germany would be the number two and number three markets that we would actively move into as a team. Now, after releasing the product and seeing where the organic growth is happening, actually we very quickly saw lots of users adopting the app in, in Sweden, in Finland, in the Netherlands, um, and the west coast of the US. And so actually our international expansion is now going to be governed by where we're seeing strong natural organic traction taking place. I think that's fascinating. And it does go back to the point that you've reiterated a few times, which is mission is the key. So mission yeah. is the key for your culture, for hiring. But also what I hear you saying is global expansion is also based on the areas of the world that also embrace your mission. Yeah. And so while those markets may not be the largest, they will perhaps be the most passionate about what you're doing. Yeah. And so that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, I always say to the team, our most precious commodity is our own time. And as a result, we should only push on open doors. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the true low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Absolutely. So is there anything that you can share with us about what's next for Oleo? Do you want to keep everyone on the edge of our seats? So anything you can tell us about what may be coming in terms of expansion or new capabilities? Yeah, so I think the the core things that are sort of front of mind for us right now um, are starting to monetize with the app. So that's a combination of both allowing in-app donations uh, through which Olio will benefit. It's about charging um, our retailer clients as we scale our Food Waste Heroes program across their portfolio. And then the third sort of monetization strand really is around premium features uh, for our super users. So there's a whole chunk of work around uh, monetization. We've got an enormous amount of work to be done on our product roadmap. That's sort of a never-ending. Mm -hmm. And our real um, next inflection point will be when we start raising for our Series A, which we'll be doing either later on this year or early next year. And that will be the point at which we will move away from our organic international expansion strategy to actually investing in the next territory or territories outside of the UK. It's exciting. Lots of growth Very coming. Exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one final question I'd like to end with, and that is, again, keeping your incredibly unique portfolio of experiences, the incredible journey that you've started and that are clearly on with Oleo. But if you were to tell our listeners who, again, some will be current startup founders and executives, others may be people that are in a similar position as you found yourself in recently, which mm -hmm. is someone with an interesting set of experiences, um, but with an idea, something that they believe could change the world. 
So what kind of guidance would you give these people at this point as they, as they ponder taking some big, yeah. perhaps risky steps in making their idea a reality? Yeah. I mean, the, the way I think about it is when you on day one, it's sort of 100% risk. And each day that passes, you need to be trying to reduce 100% down and de-risking what you're doing. Um, the first thing and the most important step is really checking that you are solving a real problem. Too many entrepreneurs start by talking about their product and actually you need to start talking about what is the problem that I'm solving and for whom. And I would definitely encourage anyone who is sort of at the early days to make sure you're you're focusing on a problem that uh, the world really needs solving. There are some enormous problems out there and it's incredibly fulfilling to be solving a really meaningful problem. Uh, and, and that's personally fulfilling, but also it makes your job of being able to create a business and a brand uh, attract top class employees so much easier if you've got an incredible mission. So start off with a problem, a real problem, uh, and then definitely do things that don't scale and be constantly testing, learning, iterating. Excellent. Well, Tessa, I can't thank you enough for the time you've spent with us today. Not only is your experience very interesting and not only for us, but for our listeners, but the concept of Oleo is just phenomenal. And as you're clearly seeing from your growth, uh, but from the energy from myself and the team here, I think you can tell um, this is something very special. And I'm very, very appreciative for you giving us the time. Thank you. My pleasure. Our next AWS Startup Stories episode will feature Darren Westlake, CEO of Crowdcube, and Tom Blomfield, CEO of Monzo, who will talk about crowdfunding for startups. Join us then. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the AWS Startup Stories webpage in the show notes for the podcast, along with a useful cheat sheet. And look out for other Startup Story podcasts coming your way soon. To find out about AWS and how we can help you grow, build, and transform your business, join thousands of innovative leaders at the AWS Summit on June 28th.